Today we're going to continue our study of the New Testament book of Acts under the banner, Eternity in Their Hearts, because we're considering people just like us who came to the understanding of the eternity God had put in their hearts. And we're looking at the results of that understanding, what they valued, what they pursued, what they were passionate about, their choices, their actions, their reactions. And so we're going to continue today by looking at a story from the 14th chapter, and I'll announce the text in just a moment. It's often said, you've heard it said, that ignorance comes at a high, high price. What we don't know will hurt us. And that's true everywhere, but it's doubly true in matters of the Spirit. When we are ignorant of what Scripture describes as Satan's devices, we're going to pay a high, high price. Ignorance of those devices is something we can ill afford. So today I want to consider what is clearly Satan's most effective device, and it's not blunt force. Quite the contrary, it's subtle seduction. And I'm going to look at seduction from 30,000 feet. We're going to take the view of big picture seduction, and then we're going to zero in on some specific examples. Our text will be Acts chapter 14 because it's a story that illustrates how Satan uses seduction to ensnare the unbelieving and to entice the believing. And the story opens in verse 11, and so we'll just read that verse to launch us in. When the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have become men and have come down to us. My title today is just one word, seduction. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, we want to hear from you. You alone have the words of eternal life. I want to effectively share those words. I can't do it on my own, so I ask for a fresh empowering from the Holy Spirit. We want to apply those words, but we can't understand them, let alone apply them on our own, so we all ask, for a fresh equipping from the Holy Spirit that we'll be able to understand your truth and apply it in our life. As always, Lord, we pray these things for three simple reasons. We want you to be honored in our midst and by our lives. We want your church to be healthy so that your church can be effective in the mission that you've given us in this broken creation. So we ask all of these things, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together, as we listen for His Spirit, may the Lord be with you. They don't teach this in public school, and I rather suspect they're not going to anytime soon. And sadly, many times they don't teach it in church, though they should. But the fact remains... Human history is merely the account of spiritual seduction and its ongoing devastating effects. Now, spiritual seduction had its beginning, had its genesis in a rather unlikely place. It began 
in heaven. Proving yet again that evil does some of its most effective work in holy places. That's why sitting among God's people on a Sunday morning is no guarantee that everything is going to be right with your soul. There are no safe places outside of heaven. In fact, as we'll see, even heaven wasn't a safe place. The only place of safety in this universe is in Christ. Now, Scripture tells us that long ago in heaven, despite obvious evidence to the contrary, Lucifer convinced himself that he was better qualified to rule than the God who predated him and the God who created him. And he didn't come to that conclusion because God had somehow assaulted his identity or because he had been cruelly oppressed or victimized. Lucifer was seduced by his own pride despite being surrounded by incredible, incredible blessing. And that's a reminder. It's a reminder that we are never seduced against our own will. Seduction requires consent. It doesn't make us pursue things we don't desire. Seduction just justifies things we secretly desire. In seduction, we aren't overcome by an external power. We are seduced by an external persuasion whose only power is appealing to our inward desires. So, seduction doesn't make us do anything. It just gives permission to do what we desire. And Lucifer desired to rule. Now, that desire and that self-seduction proved to be history's defining disaster. And here's why. Because the desire to rule is hollow. It's incomplete without subjects. So Lucifer set out in search of subjects. And he quickly proved to be a master of seduction. Because he persuaded a third of the angels of heaven to follow him and join him in his rebellion. Now those are impressive statistics for a rookie. He won the Rookie of the Year award hands down. But that start, as impressive as it was, wasn't enough for him. Because evil never has enough. It has an insatiable appetite. When Scripture says there is no rest for the wicked, it isn't because God torments them from without. It's because they are driven from within. Lucifer, driven by his pride, reassured and emboldened by his initial success, set out for more subjects. He set out to seduce humanity, starting with our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And what followed was not a case of spiritual rape. It was a case of skillful spiritual seduction. Lucifer didn't coerce Adam and Eve. He didn't have to. As Oscar Wilde once suggested, disobedience is man's original virtue. 
So Adam and Eve joined the rebellion willingly because they had been seduced by an empty promise. It's the same empty promise that Lucifer markets today. The promise that self-rule, self-governance, is better than the rule of God. Because, according to him, it liberates us from an overbearing God and his stifling restrictions. This is Father's Day. I want to remind you that Satan is a father. According to Scripture, he is the father of lies. He is the originator of fake news. <laughs> and his promise proved to be a cruel hoax. Because of inst instead of securing spiritual liberty, Adam and Eve discovered that their rebellion suffocated their liberty and left them in spiritual slavery. But Lucifer wasn't finished, not by a long shot. His seduction of humanity presses on generation after generation after generation towards an ultimate goal, and he has one. His ultimate goal is that moment when humanity in anxiety and desperation will accept a single global government under a singular leader. And that leader will be his puppet, the counterfeit Messiah, the Antichrist. And for one brief season, hell will literally rule on earth. A deceived humanity, a seduced humanity, will believe that it is the answer to their longing for peace. Then they will rudely discover that it is the answer to Lucifer's longing for power. And just when it appears everything has been lost, Jesus will return, and the verdict will change abruptly. Now, if you look at history with biblical discernment, if you consider current events in the light of prophecy and ongoing seduction, you'll see this seduction unfolding everywhere every day. You'll see it in philosophy, in politics, in economics, in science, in education, in entertainment, and even in religion. And that awareness should always shape our evaluation of what's going down. We should always evaluate current cultural developments in light of several questions. Does this development move humanity toward the rule of God, or does it move humanity towards God's impeachment and the rule of evil? Do these developments influence people to walk in step with God or to walk in lockstep with Lucifer? And I suspect if more believers judged current events in light of prophecy and knowledge of seduction, they would start to recognize Lucifer's thinly disguised seductions far more often. And then maybe they would stop liking demonic agendas on Facebook and sharing them with their unknowing friends. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but when I see some of the things believers like 
on Facebook. I just want to say, O-M-G. <laughs> Do you understand what you just liked? Do you not see where this is heading? Do you not see the story behind the story? Do you not see the purpose behind the event? But Satan doesn't limit his seductions to the unbelieving. He works feverishly at seducing Jesus' followers. Now, he knows he can't regain our souls. He can't take away our eternal life. His goal is simply to limit our declaration of truth. Why? Because truth exposes seduction. The truth sets people free. When we announce God's truth, it gets in the way of his seduction. He knows believers are on to him. And so for that reason, where Jesus' followers are concerned, he knows the most effective spiritual seductions are of the subtle variety. He knows that loud frontal assaults against the existence of God, the creation, Jesus' divinity, the inspiration of Scripture, the reality of judgment, the reality of faith, he knows those things are readily detected by spirit-filled followers of Jesus. So frontal assaults on faith primarily serve to assure the unbelieving that they're enlightened. The assaults against God's existence and creation and all the rest are Satan's attempt to ensure those who have been seduced that they aren't seduced, that they're actually sophisticated and savvy and scientific. That's his goal with the unbelieving. But frontal assaults do serve a purpose where the believing are concerned. Frontal assaults on faith serve to distract believers while Satan attacks on other fronts with subtle seductions. And I've watched him do that very effectively in this nation over the last few decades. While many Christians focus on those frontal assaults posed by atheism and a godless evolution and so on, Satan has been peddling subtle spiritual seduction on the side, and sometimes we've been swallowing it wholesale. Now, the events that took place in Lystra illustrate that, once again, there is nothing new under the sun. There, Paul and Barnabas faced a temptation unlike any they had ever known. The citizens of Lystra believed that the ancient gods Zeus and Hermes had once visited their land disguised as human beings. But nobody recognized them. Nobody received them. Nobody offered them hospitality, and nobody treated them well. So they got ticked. And in their anger, they destroyed the entire population of the region, save for one elderly couple who had been hospitable to them. And the myth went that one day they were going to return to Lystra and give the people a second chance. So, here comes Paul and Barnabas, two men who are just exuding divine power. 
But it wasn't Zeus and Hermes. It was the living God. And they begin teaching truth, and Paul is instrumental in a lame man being healed. So the populace quickly came to the conclusion, the gods have returned, and we aren't going to blow it this time. We don't want to be wiped out again. So assuming that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes, they attempted to worship the apostles. But obviously Paul and Barnabas weren't having it because they didn't desire to be seen as great because the desire to be called great is demonic. Believers desire devotion to a great God. I like to tell young pastors, you can't tell people God is great and you're great in the same sentence. Somebody has to go. Somebody has to go, and I'd like to suggest that be you. (laughs) When somebody preaching God's Word is obviously itching for applause and commendation, get out from under their teaching. Paul and Barnabas insisted, hey guys, we're just human messengers. Don't be worshiping us. Paul said, we have been sent so that you might turn from vain things, say those two words, vain things to the living God. Notice what he said, vain things, not different but equally valid spiritualities. Hold on to that. Now, the refusal to be objects of idolatry, that's what it was, wasn't a tough call. That was easy. But Paul and Barnabas faced a subtler temptation. And it's common to anybody who loves God and people. That's why we're dealing with it. It's one of Satan's most effective seductions. Satan seduces believers with the subtle idolatry of being more inclusive than God. More inclusive than God. It's a proven winner. And you know why? Because it appeals to human pride. It subtly suggests that we are somehow more enlightened, more gentle, more accepting, and kinder than God. And that's heady stuff. You see, humanity has this nasty habit of always trying to go God one better. The Pharisees did it, but they did it in a different way. Whenever God would issue a commandment to abstain from something, knowing the inherent danger in it, the Pharisees would always add ten prohibitions to God's one prohibition. So if God said, don't do this, the Pharisees would say, and don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, don't do this, because they were going God one better. They did it by adding restrictions to the Word of God. Today, many believers in our country are doing the same thing, not by adding restrictions, but by removing restrictions and adding permission. The Pharisees said, well, if God said don't do this, we're going to say don't do this either. Now today, we've reversed it, 
when God says, I won't accept that, we say, oh yeah, he will. We'll talk to him. He gets a little crotchety sometimes. But he's well-meaning, and he didn't really mean that. Do you hear how that mimics Satan? Do you hear how that clearly insinuates somehow, somehow, we're better positioned than God to decide what ought to give? Here's how it plays out in our culture. Ours is a culture where a false idea of tolerance, fake tolerance, has replaced genuine love as the chief of all virtues. In this culture, love is not the chief virtue. Tolerance is. Even though people who speak of it don't even understand the definition of tolerance, and if you don't get in lockstep with them, you quickly find out how absolutely intolerant they are. We have tolerance Nazis running amok in our nation. And in this kind of an atmosphere, the declaration that Jesus is the truth and the only truth, the way and the only way, is scandalous because it excludes other spiritualities. It condemns other spiritualities. I'm sorry, Bernie Sanders, it does. And that's seen as intolerant and un-American. And believers get intimidated by that garbage because nobody likes to be seen as an intolerant bigot. So now some inside the church are caving to the subtle seduction and are beginning to suggest that God is present in all spiritualities. Now, that's, that's not new. The idea that all, all paths lead to the top of the mountain, that's been around forever. That's another one of Satan's most effective lies. So now we're hearing that, well, God's really tucked inside of Islam and he's tucked inside of Hinduism, despite God's clear, consistent, repeated statements to the contrary. And believers who begin to espouse those things have been seduced, but worse, they've been effectively silenced because they now affirm rather than giving people an alternative and in so doing betray their fellow man as well as betraying God. See, but Paul and Barnabas weren't seduced by false inclusion. They didn't consider the religion of Lystra valid. They considered it vain. And that's why they had come with the gospel. So when the crowd sought to worship them, they didn't see a starting point for religious dialogue. They saw blasphemy. They tore their garments in anguished protest. They clearly rejected the seduction to be more inclusive than God. So why do many today embrace it? Let me suggest an answer. Satan knows error is best served with a side of truth. Because a side of truth gives it some credibility. And the seduction of an inclusive mindset appeals to something good, compassion. It appears to be rooted in love, and God is love, and God calls us to love. But here's where it fails. Compassion becomes pride when it attempts to be more caring than God, and it becomes idolatry when it elevates our caring above God's caring. 
See, Lucifer felt he was better equipped to rule than God, and if we aren't careful, we'll feel we're better equipped to make the rules better than God, better equipped to know what is in people's best eternal interest. And my friends, it may sound good, but it's just a different verse to the same demonic song. It feels godly, but it is demonic. Because the truth is, we cannot be more compassionate than God, and attempts to do so only increase suffering. The idea that you or I could be more compassionate than God is pure blasphemy. Blasphemy. Yet that's what we say when we try to explain away God's clear statements of truth so that people won't be put off. You can't be more compassionate than God. You say, well, how does attempting to do so increase suffering? Because we stop telling people the truth that is the only way out of suffering. If you stop telling them the truth that sets them free, you've left them in bondage and increased their suffering. So let me put it this way. If you really desire God's best for humanity, don't lower God's standards up your witness. See, you know what we're doing in contemporary America? We're lowering God's standards while we lower our witness. Now, don't lower God's standards. Up your witness game. Quit being silent among your unsaved friends. And always remember this. The rebel mind is offended there's only one way. The repentant heart is delighted there is a way. I've used this example before. If I'm drowning, gone down for the count, somebody throws me a lifeline, I'm not going to say, I'm offended that you're only giving me one way out of this mess. (laughs) I'd like several options so that when I choose, it's my choice. No, I'm just, you give me a stick, you give me, you give me anything, I'm taking it, honey, and I'm glad you gave it to me. But modern man says, no, 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 we, we want it on our terms. And pathetic Christians try to give it to them on their terms. Now, spiritual seduction, as you might expect, is filled with irony. And in a classic example of that, the citizens of Lystra that thought Paul was a god, get this, ignored what he was saying. Now figure that out. If you really think the dude's God, wouldn't you listen to him? But they didn't, and that tells us a lot about the kind of gods we want. Idolatry desires a god on its own terms. A god who echoes the heart rather than challenging it. It shuns a God who speaks truth, points the way, and requires repentance. It wants gods who say what it wants to hear and confirms paths they've already chosen. A God who, oddly enough, looks just like the image I see in the mirror every morning. So when Paul and Barnabas refused to conform to their wishes, irony of ironies, they turned against them and stoned Paul. Just hours after trying to worship him as a god, they tried to stone him to death. See why it's silly to try to please people? (laughs) The target's always moving. 
So the prince of seduction offers lost humanity something they secretly desire, the idolatry of self-governance and self-rule, spirituality on their terms. And they fail to realize it's a cruel hoax and an empty promise. But he doesn't stop there. Where Jesus' followers are concerned, he wants to effectively silence us before a seduced world by seducing us. And he succeeds when we embrace a false inclusion that excludes hope and a false compassion that excludes genuine love. It's all very subtle. Only the discerning will resist it. But it should never catch any believer off guard. As I've said to you many times, if you're indwelt by the Spirit and own a Bible, there's a statute of limitations on ignorance. Long ago in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul warned us this was coming. He said, now the Spirit speaks expressly, right on point, that in the latter times, we're there, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. God said this is coming. He warned us. So I opened with an old adage. Let me close with one. To be forewarned is to be prepared. And to be prepared is half the victory. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, all about us believers are falling to seduction, thereby removing the only hope of those who are seduced in unbelief. When they need us to be on our game, we're getting out of the game. God, I pray in this place and every place where Jesus is named as Lord, I pray for a revival of biblical prophetic discernment that is not ignorant of Satan's devices, but sees through them and stubbornly holds to the faith once delivered that is not ours to edit because we are not better fit to rule or make the rules than a perfect and loving God. So God, help us to be on our game so that we can help the unbelieving find their way out of deception. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. A final thought. As I said earlier, Lucifer knows seduction is best when it's served up with a side of truth. So the Lycaonian shouted this, The gods have become like men and have come down to us, not realizing there was an element of truth there. Because when our ancestors thought they could rise up and become like God, how did the one true God respond? He responded by becoming like a man and coming down to us. He came down so that we could lay aside seduction and take up truth and salvation. So let's take it up.